I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when a cassette tape ran 90 minutes but held infinite promise, when drugs went suburban and parents didn't helicopter, when stars walked among us but you couldn't even prove it. I Am The Fly, David Klein, guiding you through the pre-digital past on a pair of warped wings. Next up, my first grade teacher sniffs out a hippie lover, I land in the stockade, and my brother's always in the last place you'd look. Every object in the basement at Five Sherwood had been left behind by the home's previous owners, the Santinis. At the bottom of the dimly lit staircase was a reptilian, vinyl-covered trundle bed, which Dad called a glider and in which no one ever sat. In the far corner was a work table replete with a pair of vices, one metal, one wood, cabinets worthy of Caligari, and the lingering redolence of three-in-one oil and man sweat. Filling the recess beneath the narrow staircase was a hulking General Electric freezer the color of albumen. The most notable leave-behind was a pool table. Positioned between two unpainted support columns, atop a linoleum tile floor dulled to a pearlescent sheen from decades of foot traffic, the pool table dominated the room. The Santinis left plenty of cues and chalk behind, but we had no use for the finer points of billiards. Johnny, older by 16 months, was fast and agile. He would chase me around the table, or we'd whirl the balls into the holes or into one another, just to achieve that satisfying <laughs> The games got much more interesting with the addition of the Wilson girls from across the street. Twice as noisy and twice as exciting. Casey, taller and a year older than Johnny, had a blonde pixie cut. Kim was freckled and brassy and was my first crush. The Wilson's house was the block's largest and most impressive lot. Partially obscured by tall shrubbery, the property included a handsome in-ground swimming pool. In the tar-black driveway nestled a neat white Mercedes coupe and a Ford station wagon, a pairing that combined opulence with suburban utility in a touch of retro, his-and-her, rock-hudson-doris day movie vibes. The pool alone imbued the Wilson home with a special glow. On weekends, the invited guests seemed to be friends from out of town. We belonged to the town swim club, so we weren't starved for chlorinated water or anything. But the Wilson's pool felt like an exclusive private club, one whose enticing whoops and splashes teased us with the vision of a Disney movie taking place just out of reach. In the midst of one primal pool table chase with the Wilson girls, Johnny was inspired to shout out, Route 4! Route 4! The name of a local highway he must have heard our parents mention. It struck a chord. Pretty soon all of us were doing it, racing around the pool table chanting, Route 4! Route 4! For all we were worth, for the pure rush of it. And things just escalated. Johnny decreed that the next person he tagged would have to show us theirs. The chase resumed, and as I expected, Casey was swiftly tagged. The room grew hushed, and she complied, reluctantly but without protest. Perhaps out of shame, we shifted to a game of hide-and-seek with the lights off. 
With its dim corners, numerous nooks, and easily achievable darkness, the basement was made for it. Casey counted first, and we scattered. I found a place behind the glider, careful to keep it from creaking. I could sense that Kim had found a place to crouch beneath the work table, behind the vices. We amateurs didn't last long, but Johnny, always the innovator, was nowhere to be found. We drifted back around the room, then traipsed upstairs and looked for him there, but no one had even heard him go up there. He just outsmarted us, and not for the first time. Eventually the other kids drifted off homeward, leaving me vexed. Seized with a sudden certainty, I scampered back down the stairs, because he had to be down there. I began to ease myself around the perimeter, listening, pausing, considering feasible hiding place possibilities. Without consciously deciding to, I made a beeline to the freezer and yanked the lever. And out he tumbled. The Refrigerator Safety Act had been on the books for a decade, yet this kind of fatal carelessness endured long afterward. As late as 1986, an episode of Punky Brewster was dedicated to the subject of refrigerator death, with Punky and her pal saving the day by administering CPR to the unfortunate hider. There was no follow-up episode on the after-effects of accidental entombment, but in my brother's case, those minutes he spent trapped inside the freezer, taking shallow breaths and fully aware of the danger he was in, had to have left some kind of a mark. He wasn't outwardly changed in any way that I could see. He kept on being Johnny, and the incident was allowed to recede. But he was surely praying while he was in there, and it wasn't God who intervened. If his kid brother had been distracted by something, Kim Wilson's freckles, say, and dawdled before realizing something was amiss, he'd have been a goner. From then on, Johnny vehemently resisted anything that seemed to encroach upon him, or anyone who wanted more from him than he was willing to give. As for me, that yank, the sight of him pitching forward onto the ground in a desperate sweaty heap became mythic in my mind. It quietly affirmed something I had no words for. Following my instinct, I had known what to do. The freezer stayed right where it was. Why waste a good freezer? No point in being superstitious. Eventually the folks cleaned it out, plugged the thing in, and, cautiously at first, began populating it with Kekaroni, Dad's name for the trays of pasta one of his patients, a Mrs. Keck, plied him with until shortly before her death. It's tempting to conclude that my parents were horribly negligent in leaving a potential death trap in the basement, but they were hardly alone. There was a conspicuously casual attitude toward public safety in America in those days, and kids were constantly in harm's way. Run over by Chryslers while playing in roadside leaf piles, doing high-speed headers off poorly designed Raleigh chopper bicycles onto unforgiving pavement, and yes, 
suffocating in the unused refrigeration units considered by many to be too cumbersome for safe disposal. My brother's near-fatal run-in with GE merchandise was down to the era's dangerous lack of supervision. My own ludicrous entanglement with a seemingly innocent product of American ingenuity was... Nobody's fault but mine. On the first day of first grade, once we were all seated at one of the desks lined up in neat rows, the teacher told us to listen up and listen good. She paused, for effect or so it seemed, but the reason for her hesitation soon became clear. A yellow jacket, its thrumming wings riffing agreeably with the faint buzz of overhead fluorescence, was making a balletic descent toward her, the one person in the room who wasn't afraid of it. When finally the bee alighted upon the not inconsiderable forearm of Miss B, my teacher looked, from all outward appearances, unperturbed. Now, as I was saying, children, these desks that you're now occupying, they're pretty old-fashioned. That much is obvious. In fact, some are 30 or 40 years old and date back to a time when students were taught to write using pen and ink. On the underside of your desk are two circular spaces that students used to use to stow away the nibs of their pens. These holes no longer serve any purpose. They just happen to be the perfect size to accommodate the fingertip of an unthinking or overly curious child. And snugly, too. Believe you me. So keep away from these holes, children. You are not to explore these little holes with your fingers. Something, a furtive movement, maybe a hint of wind, alerts me that a kid behind me is waving his hand and possibly hyperventilating. Yes, Mitchell. What's your question? The sound of sobbing fills the room. I turn around and spot the sobber, who has scored the daily double in record time. He's stuck in a perverse, hip-level double thumbs up, his upper body heaving laterally while the rest of him stays put, his cherub face glowing crimson. Sighing, knees cracking, Miss B rises and heads toward the single toilet restroom in the back to retrieve some soap. Well, at least it wasn't me. Until, almost by providence, it was me. During certain periods devoted to free play, we could go to the back of the room while Miss B stayed up in front at her desk. You could mess around, read a book, play Battleship. I was telling Tommy Roberts, who was kind of my best friend at this point, how the wife of Bill Robinson, the Yankees' right fielder, was my dad's patient. And no, she was not going to die, she just had some kidney problems. I was kneeling on the floor, leaning through the gap in the back of the chair as I talked to Tommy, my arms resting on the smoothly tapered seat. At some point, I found I was unable to dislodge myself. Simply reversing the movements that had led me into this awkward position should have done the trick, but I seized up in a slight panic and couldn't think straight. Now don't get me wrong, I was not a particularly uncoordinated sort, but somehow, on this day, this chair, this fucking chair, had me. If you're having trouble picturing this, that's understandable. I can still barely believe it happened. I let out a defeated sigh. Guess you better go get Miss B. Only a few months into the term, the battle lines had already been drawn. 
Miss B had sniffed out the hippie lover in her midst, and she had no tolerance for subversives, outside agitators, or any kind of lip. In me, she detected all of those things, along with something else, something I wasn't even fully conscious of, nor had I the words to express. According to Merriam-Webster, the word wise-ass didn't come into common usage until 1971, and that was two years away. But wise-ass was on the verge of becoming part of the language because it needed to. As a subgroup, the wise-ass is not celebrated nearly as often as the jock, the nerd, or other school-age archetypes, but the term made itself essential via this once ubiquitous line of hostile inquiry. What are you, some kind of wise-ass? Or the imperative, hey, don't be such a wise-ass. At any rate, nobody liked a wise-ass. And once you're perceived as one, everything you do has the potential to mark you as a wise-ass even further, even if you really didn't mean it that way. Like, a few weeks earlier, when Miss B made a joke that I didn't realize was a joke, she took it as a wise-ass thing, when it was really just a misunderstanding. Who knows the longest word in the English language? Well, hallelujah. She'd finally hit on a truly interesting topic. I even knew the answer. Anti-disestablishment. Something. Smiles. Because there's a mile between the first and last letters. But, but it's not the longest, I sputtered, forgetting to raise my hand. There are much longer words than smiles, it's just... It's just that you have no sense of humor. And here she got the bigger laugh. After a minute, Tommy was back. Well, what did she say? Well... Come on, what did she say? She said, good. A few minutes later, Ronald Muller, the new school principal, strode into the room carrying a handsaw. Trim, with a receding hairline and the alert expression of a salamander, Muller was clearly someone who would choose action over deliberation. Perhaps I alone detected a hint of theatricality in the way he unbuttoned, then rolled up his shirt sleeves, like William Holden in Picnic. Maybe only I picked up on the seeming relish he took in the brief pause between setting saw blade on the slat mere inches from my left ear and applying two manly pats to my right shoulder. The first shriek of metal tearing into wood made me wince. After that, I willed myself to keep as still as possible until the ordeal was over. Noting with alarm the various pairs of feet that had begun to accumulate at the edges of my sight line, especially the smirking PF flyers of Scotty Moo, my first bully, I felt I was a pilgrim in the pillory, gawked at and going nowhere, a piteous little jerk. Ooh exclaimed Muller after making it through one side of the slat. Now that is some thick and sturdy wood, Miss B. <laughs> I'm getting in my jack lane over here, he said, panting slightly. Miss B emitted a cluck. They were made to last back then, Mr. Muller. I was famous around school afterward, the kid who got his head stuck in a chair. It didn't help that they kept the chair, but why waste a perfectly good piece of school equipment? Sure, it was minus one slat, but you could still sit your insignificant little ass on the thing, could you not? Besides, its presence served as a living reminder not to do extremely foolhardy things. Miss B even managed to leave a musical mark on me. What Miss B really lived for was the rhythm band, a performance in the school auditorium that she presided over from behind an upright piano, 
her back to the audience like a maestro. It was a complicated process that began with Miss B assigning each of us a pair of rhythm sticks to bang, a maraca or a tambourine to shake, or a triangle to tinkle. Sticks were coveted because they were the loudest. Maracas and tambos made an agreeable noise, so they were okay, and as far as I could tell, no one ever wanted to be a meek, tinkly triangle. She made me a triangle. Tommy Roberts got sticks, of course. She loved Tommy Roberts. Miss B favored buttoned-up contemporary music from the beginning of the decade. Along with seasonal chestnuts, she favored the work of Leroy Anderson. Anderson was like the second coming of my next-door neighbor, Glenn Miller. He was an arranger, a composer, and a conductor. He also played the trombone and was proud to serve his country. In 1942, the same year Miller enlisted, Anderson was drafted by the U.S. Army. Initially sent to Reykjavik, he spoke six languages, including Icelandic. He landed stateside in 1945 at the Scandinavian desk. Anderson, who would eventually compose his orchestral miniatures in a custom-built soundproof room in his Connecticut home, managed to pen the syncopated clock, one of his biggest hits, while stationed in the nation's capital and rooting out bad guys for Uncle Sam. And I do mean miniatures. Syncopated clock runs 2 minutes 23 seconds, the same length as Territorial Pissings by Nirvana. We also did Yellowbird, an easy listening classic in elevators and waiting rooms across America. Now this was the kind of banana Miss B liked. Oh, it was 1967, but she was having none of it. My man Donovan and his banana could take a long walk off a short pier. The music of Leroy Anderson embodied a straight and orderly vision of American life that Miss B cherished and which seemed to be under attack in that chaotic era. On the day of the rhythm band concert, were grouped on stage according to rhythm instrument on risers and made visually uniform via green and red matching paper tunics. We open with a syncopated clock. Now the song ostensibly emphasizes odd pauses and offbeats, but make no mistake, Miss B had us emphatically banging, shaking, and tinkling strictly on the one beat. Let's not get crazy. Unseen by the audience, Miss B is right there with us every step of the way, cueing us in the fiercest of whispers. Sticks or tambourines. Now you jackasses. In our first grade class picture, Miss B is at the center wearing a tan woolen sweater and a check skirt that ends past her knees. Her hands are folded and she smiles proudly. There's a small gouge around her chin and the remains of a beard and mustache drawn in blue ballpoint. Some of the girls in the middle row have similar additions of facial hair, as do two of the cross-legged boys in the front row. Mitchell, on the floor because he's short and beaming away cockily because he knows the drill, 
has a goatee in shades, and Artie O'Day has been augmented with a pretty sweet Fu Manchu. Tommy Roberts, no mustache of course, is standing in the back row with the taller boys, me included, his thick brown hair combed forward in a wave above his eyes. He's wearing a red blazer and a bow tie, the same thing worn by a kid on my right. Apparently, the movie Usher look was in that year. To one side of me is Scotty Moo, or what remains of Scotty Moo. His head has been scraped away, as if by a ballpoint pen or other sharp object. All that remains is his red turtleneck-clad shoulder, at roughly my eye level. In her end-of-the-year report, Miss B had this to say. David's persistence should make him very successful in anything he undertakes. I hope it will be channeled in the right direction. He exhibits a good sense of security, but perhaps he has too much self-confidence for his own good. He does resent criticism of any sort and shows it with his looks. He holds the record for tardiness this year, and of course, it's always his mother's fault. I hope he'll get over this and learn to face up to his own shortcomings as time goes on. In the next episode, Mom finds peace, I find Jesus, Christ Superstar that is, plus how to ruin a candlelight vigil. Check out IamTheFly.org for a mix of songs excerpted here and more. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell all your friends.